Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. One play, 30 minutes, straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Linda Javen is a writer, translator, and cultural commentator. She is the author of 11 books and a frequent contributor to respected publications, including The Monthly. Her first novel was the comic erotic international bestseller, Eat Me. Her seventh and most recent novel is The Empress Lover. Her non-fiction includes Confessions of an S&M Virgin and the China memoir The Monkey and the Dragon, as well as Beijing, which has just been published as part of Reaction Press's CityScope series. Between 2001 and 2005, Linda regularly visited asylum seekers at Villawood Detention Centre, and the play that we're here to talk about today, Halal El-Mashakel, features characters based on people that she met at Villawood. The play features in the 2013 collection edited by Emma Cox, Staging Asylum, Contemporary Australian Plays About Refugees. Halal El-Mashakel is an odd couple story, a friendship between two musicians stuck in an immigration detention centre. There's a drummer, who loves rock and roll, and the guitarist with a passion for Cat Stevens. Their discord becomes a key, unlocking the deep frustration and aimlessness that both men feel. And Javen finds just enough dark humour to save them from oblivion. So what about the real men that Javen based these characters on? They're just human beings, she says. Fucked up, smart, stupid, flawed, funny, lovely at times, horrible at others. In other words, just like you and me. I wanted to show that asylum seekers are no different from us, and just as deserving of fair, just, and humane treatment in accordance with the principles of human rights as the rest of us are. So Linda, welcome to Not In Print. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, before we talk about the play, I want to understand why you first visited Villawood Detention Centre. Can you explain what brought you there originally? Yes, sure. It was the time of Tampa and Children Overboard. And I think those two events made me suddenly realise that something was going on in the country that I had been blind to, perhaps a little willfully blind. I remember reading about riots in Woomera and thinking, probably like a lot of Australians do, oh, oh, too hard, what's that? What's going on? People locked up, but they're rioting. Don't like that. You know, I, I, I think I just put it out of my head. And then Tampa, with these refugees being picked up in a boat and rescued by a Norwegian ship and then refused entry to refused Australia. entry to Australia. It really woke me up and I was going, what is going on here? And then at the same time, we had children overboard, which was clearly lies by this government about the nature of refugees, who the sort of people who would throw their children overboard. And I'm thinking, no, 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 my grandfathers were refugees. So I've always been very aware of the issue and I don't know why I'd put it out of my head before but I you know this was something that made me think about it and at the same time my book The Monkey and the Dragon it was published on September 4th 2001. So all of this is around the same time. I had a whole schedule of things to, you know, I was had a big publicity schedule and all this sort of thing. One week later, the towers came down. <laughs> it all happened and, in great succession, Tampa yeah. and then the towers and then the children overboard. It, it was rapid ex- succession. It was rapid succession. And 
Of course, that was so shocking. And that, of course, took everybody's brain away into um, terror land for a while. The thing that it did to me personally was destroy my entire publicity schedule <laughs> because nobody wanted to know about anything except Islam and terror and this person Osama bin Laden and all of that. So we had radio and TV interviews canceled right, left and center. Wow. So I really, I had a sudden period of nothing much to do. I'd always, I'm a great, great theater girl. I'm a great fan of theater. I love what theater can do and I love what it does that nothing else does. The immediacy and the power. And I've always wanted to write for theater. And I thought, okay, I've got a sudden bit of time. I'm getting very upset about what's been going on. I feel bad that I hadn't been following this more closely before. I'm upset at the lies that are being told. And I was also upset at the Islamophobia that followed the Twin Towers. All of that moved me to think, I'm going to write my first play and I'm going to do it on a refugee theme. So I got an idea for a play and it wasn't Halal al-Mashakel. It was Seeking Jira, is that, that right? That's right. And I thought, oh, this is really good. And I've got this asylum seeker character. And very quickly I thought, no, I really don't know any asylum seekers. I better figure out how to do this. I better meet some. And I found out a name of somebody to visit at, in Villawood, uh, Amr Sultan, who was a doctor from Iraq who was locked up. And a number of people had visited him. And he was, he was kind of, oh, I don't know. He, he was very articulate, so he was a, sort of a spokesperson. People went and saw him. He had a lot of visitors. I got his name and organized to visit. I was terrified, actually. I didn't know what it was going to be like, and I didn't know what to expect, and I didn't know what to say. And he said, I'll help you create your character. I'm very happy to do that. But he said, but you can't just come once or twice. And... I, of course, agreed to come more often. I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't actually dream that it would come to take over my life for the next three and a half years. Mm. When did you decide that Halal el-Mashakal had to be written? Well, very early on, my very first visit, in fact, Amr Sultan had introduced me to a young Iraqi boy called Nashwan. And that morning, Nashwan had just slit his wrists. Uh, so he was bandaged up and... Yeah, this is this is what I mean. Like you just you go in and and it's so, it's so shocking. You don't even know how to as a visitor. It takes a really long time to figure out how to cope with this as well. So there I am. I'm meeting this young Iraqi boy, um, who I think was 19 at the time or 20, and you know he said, "Oh, I just tried to kill myself this morning." I was like, "Oh, um, it uh, it." it is there anything I can do for you? I, mean, I didn't know what I could do, you know. Is there anything I could do? And to my absolute astonishment, he said, yeah, you could get me a drum kit. <laughs> 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 and this is the other thing about detention is that, and I think this is missed if you just look at it from the outside and you don't really think of asylum seekers as people. If you think of them as villains or victims, or angels or heroes, you don't realize they're actually people, yeah. you know. So he said, I want a drum kit. So this became my mission in life. And with the help of Tim Friedman of the Whitlams, um, we got a drum kit. And uh, Tim Friedman used his star power to walk the drum kit in. It was <laughs> hilarious. The, the guards were in awe. And we somehow managed to walk that drum kit into Villawood. So... 
there's Nashwan with his drum kit. Then I meet Morteza. And Morteza, Nashwan's a Siraki boy, a little younger than him, Morteza, young Iranian boy. When I first saw him, he was playing the guitar in the visiting yard. He was playing Cat Stevens. Moonshadow, right? Yeah, Moonshadow. And I actually thought he was a visitor because at the time, a lot of uh, university students would visit. So I thought, oh, he's probably... And then I saw he didn't have the plastic uh, wristband that all the visitors had. And I thought, oh, my God. Cause, and that's the other thing. Like, he looked just, you know, he was dressed in a T-shirt and jeans, and he, he, he would not have been out of place walking down the streets of any city in Australia. We started talking, and I got to know him as well. That was also very, very early on. And he and, he and Nashwan would hang out. I mean, there was a bunch of teenage boys there. And then one day I said to them, hey, do you guys ever play together? I mean, as far as I knew, they were the only people with musical instruments in Villawood. And I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Nashwan who said, nah, hate each other's taste in music. And I just burst out laughing and I thought, oh, my God. And I think that was the seed I, that, that lodged in my head. As a writer, often something somebody says lodges in your head and you think there's meaning in that, there's more in that, and you play around with it. And that's what Halala Mashakal came out of. Um, I don't mean to imply that Nashwan is the drummer in the play because I created that personality out of, out of a number of... It's a composite character. Uh, it was Nashwan's drumming and the fact that he and Morteza didn't play together that inspired the play. And again, the, the guitarist isn't Morteza. When I wrote it, I took cues from him, but I didn't make it as him either. So they are fictional people. Well, I want to put something to you that the editor of Staging Asylum, Emma Cox, said in her introduction to Halal El-Mashakal. She says that the guitarists and the drummer's aimlessness comes literally from their increasing struggle to see anything to aim for. Does music offer a cure for the aimlessness, do you think? Well, in the play, it's suggested that from the guitarist standpoint, this keeps you human, this keeps you, this keeps your spirit alive and the guitarist the drummer says it's just killing time and of course a, a drummer is marking time so it's literal as well mm. I mean the the nice thing was that there was a real life situation that had so many symbolic and metaphorical possibilities contained within it mm. and so, the guitarist specifically says that it doesn't kill time it does just the opposite yes can you explain how you think music gives life to people well absolutely it's uh you know, because music is a an art of time, as we all know. Music, music exists within time, um, and so music creates something out of time. If we sit here in silence for ten minutes, nothing has been created out of that time. But if we play together, if we sing and play if we write music together, if we improvise, whatever we do, we have made something out of those 10 minutes. We have given meaning and we have brought beauty of some sort into the world, depending on how well we play, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I am terrible, so I'm going to leave that to you. Okay, okay well, we, won't, we won't do that. We won't do that. Maybe we could play the spoons or something. Yeah. There's a really great exchange between the guitarist and the drummer about detention. The guitarist offers this analogy. He says, you know what this place feels like? It's an airport where the planes come and go, but all the passengers have lost their passports and are stuck in transit. 
And the drummer replies, well, they don't have prison guards at airports. They don't push you into walls at airports. They don't treat you like a fucking animal at airports. Did you find that kind of treatment was common? Did you see anything like that or did it all happen outside of visitors' hours? Situations can blow up instantly. There was so much stress. There was so much pressure. And sometimes the guards could be uh, gratuitously mean. Incendiary as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then again, some of them were incredibly kind and facilitate. They would turn a blind eye when they saw a mobile phone coming in. Did you think it was a matter of personalities? Yeah. Did it come down to that, really? Yeah, it came down to personality. It also came down to people, I think, becoming aware of the political dimension of their job. Right. And some people not being happy with that. And I think we've seen that this has happened again um, with the death of Reza Bharati on Manus Island um, and the death of the other asylum seeker who cut his foot and then died because he was allowed to become, to get septicemia. Nobody, you know, it's just extraordinary what goes on. And then what's happened is a number of guards and former guards have gone against their. Uh, clause of silence, um, you know, in the contracts and spoken out. Guards are people too. Mm. And I'm just curious to know, after spending so much time at Villawood, how did your understanding of the effects of detention change over that period? Because initially, I'm sure you had one understanding and it must have grown and developed and evolved into something quite, quite different or? Well, you can know something intellectually. You can know that indefinite mandatory detention can ruin people psychologically and even physically and, and ultimately mentally as well. You know that it can have terrible, terrible effects on people. But it's when you see things, um, when you see somebody like this teenage boy go from being you know, because there are many times when he was a very normal teenager and then go to being so depressed that he could barely speak and they put him on a cocktail of drugs, which really did his head in, and he was weeping. It was just horrible. It was absolutely horrible. So you could see this because I, I visited over three and a half years. So there were people that were there when I, when I started going there and they were still there. I saw people just go downhill, downhill, downhill. The life sucked right out of them. The life sucked out of them. The the capacity for anything, any kind of joy sucked out of them. Um, I want to ask you about survival techniques in there yeah. as well because there's a really insightful exchange between the, uh, the guitarist and the drummer again about surviving in detention long term. The guitarist takes this piece of advice from his mother. She says, try and stay sane any way you can. If we stay sane, then we win. And the drummer replies, do you think so? I mean, look at Ahmad, sanest person I know, but he's been here three years and he's lost every appeal. They won't give him a visa and they won't send him home. You think he's won. Now, clearly there's a divide here, Linda. So do you give in to aimlessness and let go of your grip on your internal compass? Or do you fortify yourself and try and strengthen your mind against the psychological corrosion of detention? Where's the middle ground? Well, you'd see people on both sides of that. And, you you know, I saw several people who lost their minds. Um, it was very distressing to watch, like seriously lost their minds um, in detention. And people would say when he first came, he was so normal. 
and so excited and so happy to be free and all this stuff. And, and that would be a person who would just go around borrowing, you know, tablespoons of sugar from everyone, putting it in a cup and stirring it. And, I mean, people who did seriously madhouse sort of things, you know, um, really disturbed behaviors. Um, but there was another exchange in the play, too, about hope. And it was, uh, there's two ways of looking at it. And I saw both of these philosophies expressed and enacted among the asylum seekers in Villawood. One philosophy is hope is good because you hold on to it and it keeps you sane and it keeps you focused and you stay positive. And the other philosophy is have no hope because hope only lets you down every single time you knock back you fall really hard. So it's better not to have any hope. And then if something goes well, if something works out, if you actually get out, it's all uphill. It's all good. It's all, you know, happiness and joy. So I saw people do both, and I don't know who actually survived better. But I think also it was personality. Some people, I'll give you an example. When we started uh, the production, it was at the old Fitz. And there was an Afghani actor, and um, I think at the time it was Haz, Hazem Shamis, Palestinian-Australian actor. And then we went on, we had different combinations of people. Um, we decided to do, we went to Newcastle, to the This Is Not Art Festival. We did the Wollongong Festival, a Canberra uh, conference on human rights and the arts. Um, it did really well at the old Fitz. Um, it was, so it was getting a bit of momentum. So we thought we'll take it to Adelaide at the fringe. And at this point, our regular actors, none of them could do it. We thought, okay, what are we going to do? Now, Morteza had read the play. Um, several refugees whose English was good enough had read the play because I, I didn't want it performed until refugees had read it and especially Morteza, since it takes a lot of his experience. So they read the play. They gave ideas. You know, I'm sure I can't remember exactly which bits. I think they would tell me more stories just, just for fun. The same thing happened when I wrote my novel, Infernal Optimist. They provided me with escape plots. They provided me with, <laughs> they provided me with so much information. I would say, what if you wanted to meet a girl? You know, how do you do it? Like, how do you sneak? And they would tell me. So... I had all this, you know, they had already given me this feedback. Morteza loved it. He was like, this is so cool. He said, this is me. When I get out of detention, I am playing the guitarist. And so I said, of course you are. And when we play, when we, when we performed it, we had a video that we took in and showed them. They're really happy with it. You know, it's validating. It's very validating. Anyway, finally... After four years in detention, Morteza does get a visa and is let out. This was around the time we realized that our, our regular actors were not available for Adelaide. Morteza, who had always said, I will play the guitarist, said, I will play the guitarist. <laughs> and I said, well, I think that would be amazing, but it's up to the director. It has to be. So the director said, cool, let's have him, let's see how he reads. So she had him read and she went, this is extraordinary. You know, he's going to need work because he's never acted. He's, you know, but he's 
going to be great. And when he did act in it, it was quite a gruelling schedule for the Adelaide Fringe. He did something like, was it about 60 or 70? No, I think it was 30-something. Right, okay. I I can't remember now, but it was very gruelling. And they did schools and they did did the Fringe and, you know, it was nonstop. And we were in Adelaide at the same time as WOMAD. Right. And I can't remember how it happened, but Morteza spoke at WOMAD. Wow. Wow. Yeah. He's got an incredible presence. He's really articulate. He's a smart, smart boy. Well, he, you know, he's a man. <laughs> At the time, he was a boy. He was so good. Art imitating life, imitating art, doesn't even begin to describe that, no. does it? Oh, that's, no. That's it was, next level stuff. It's absolutely next level. You were saying before that there are two philosophies. One is that hope obviously sustains you and allows you to actually get through an incredibly difficult situation without going crazy. And the other is that there's no point in hoping anyway because it's all futile and you're just going to be stuck there forever. So if you just accept that, everything's the same anyway, and that might be another coping mechanism. You said you didn't know who had really done better out of those two, but one thing we do know is not everyone would come to that and write a comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Not everyone would take that and turn it into an odd couple story. Well, why did you go in that direction? I think that's my natural bend. Most Most of what I write has a comic edge. But also, I think that's been... When I was there and I would see... There were a lot of very lovely visitors from churches and so on, um, and there were a lot of very earnest asylum seekers. Um, I think I gravitated to, or people gravitated to me, who liked the fact that I could make the odd joke. And I suppose for me, I didn't want to write something. I'd seen other people write things in different genres that were very serious and very earnest. And the only people who read them were people who agreed that we shouldn't lock up asylum seekers indefinitely. Preaching to the choir, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so I thought, is there a way to reach out? And humor is a way of reaching out. And I also drew on a specific in- incident as well, um, incident um, in detention. And it had to do with the guitarist because he, at one point, they were all the kids were sewing their lips and uh, you know, this this wrist slitting and all of that. I mean, this was a regular thing that happened. And sometimes they would happen in waves and they would it would be like a contagion because the the despair would just spread. And sometimes it was the result of something that the government had said. Um, sometimes it was the result of uh, just somebody who should obviously have gotten their claim um, assessed positively, getting knocked back. It was news from home. It could be anything. And it, you know, it would create this thing so there was this time when the guitarist actually tried to kill himself by drinking a bottle of shampoo because that was all he had (laughs) Um, and so in the end he had incredible pain and he told me he pissed bubbles Um, (laughs) (laughs) right after this happened and the first time he came out to the visiting yard after his doing this, because I think he probably was in medical for a little while, I saw him and all the visitors, the regular visitors, were huddled round and and they were being really, really just, oh, you know, you poor thing. And, oh, you know, very sincere and very wonderful and very warm and very loving. And he was sitting there just absolutely 
sour and miserable and horrible. And I walked up to him and I said, you can't commit suicide. I said, what's next? Conditioner? (laughs) And he laughed. Hmm. And that was the first time, you know, I saw him laugh. Hmm. And that actually, I thought, oh, that's actually a function of humor as well. Hmm. Maybe a bit of a risk at the time. I don't know. But I didn't, I feel it was a risk. I, I thought I knew him well enough. And so what I did was I actually put that into the play. And I think that's one of the strongest things about the work is it it manages to um, approach all of the tough issues without being an issues-based play. Was that mm. something that you were conscious oh, of when you were writing it? Very, very consciously. So basically it was what stories worked with the characters and there's no visitors, there's nobody to bring in an outside opinion of, isn't this bad or the government's doing this or, you know, there's nothing like that. Um, it's really just about these two boys sitting there waiting for something to happen and trying to figure out if they can play music together. Humanizing people that are so often um, lumped together in such a large group as a political issue that they are essentially erased as human beings and yeah. they become issues. Yeah, and I would say it's humanizing the issue. The people were already human. Right. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And look. Why did I choose Halalama Shakel? That means problem solvers. And it's um, it's because one day I was in detention and sometimes they would get uh, visitors from their own communities, people who didn't necessarily know them. But, for example, there were Palestinians from the community who would come in and visit Palestinians, Iranians. The visitors were a very interesting lot. You know, there were people from, there were students, there were church groups, there was you know, everybody. So one day I went in, I was visiting, it was probably Morteza and his family, um, although everybody used to sit around, the Nashwan's family and Morteza's family all sat together a lot of the time and there were kids and everything else. Anyway, we were sitting around and there had been some Iranian visitors and they had brought, among other things, a big bag of what they told me was halal mashakel. And it, they told me it literally meant problem solvers. And the Arab said, oh, yes, we have the same thing. And what, what it was is this mix of toasted or roasted chickpeas and nuts and uh, I think some dried fruits and, and all of this stuff. It was absolutely, it was, you know, it was like, I don't know, Middle Eastern trail mix or something. <laughs> it was really yummy. And the idea of it being called problem solvers just stuck in my head. I mean, I do admit that when I decided that I was, that that was going to be part of the play. And I had to go back and ask, what was that snack called again? Because <laughs> I didn't remember the name. I just remembered that it was called Problem Solvers. Mm. <laughs> Maybe there's a problem that's still to be solved. Yeah, there's a problem that's still to be solved. That's that's definitely true. There's a quote that I want to read from the drummer. It's a saying from his home country. When the people on the top of the mountain look at the people in the valley, they look small. But when the people in the valley look at the people on the mountain, they look small to them as well. It's not quite out of sight, out of mind there, but it's meaning it's it's kind of close to that. And I wonder what you think its message underlines about the attitudes that most Australians have towards refugees, because there's something in there, isn't there? Yeah, the saying to me is very much about not being able to see people who are on the other side of a divide. If you're on the mountain, here we are, secure in our little fortress, and we see people coming up the valley. 
they, they look like ants. They don't look like people. And it's basically about the lack of communication, the lack of human contact, and the lack of willingness to, not on their part, I've never met an asylum seeker who didn't want more contact with ordinary Australians. And our, as visitors, we were so welcome. We were so welcome. We were so, you know, people who had nothing. If they were given something, they would give something to us. I mean, a, a, an Iraqi who, was, who decided to return home after the Iraq war started because he was more terrified for his wife and children than he was to return and possibly be tortured again. He got another visitor to get the Dalai Lama's book of, a little book of wisdom by the Dalai Lama to give to me. This is the sort of thing, you had these amazing little generosities. I have a ring that uh, an Iraqi gave me from Iraq, a beautiful silver ring with a red stone. Um, you know, people... They wanted to see the people on the mountain and the mountain, the people on the mountain never wanted to see the people in the valley. So let's talk about Nashwan and Morteza now. Where are they? Well, I haven't seen Nashwan for many years, but I just heard the other day that um, he'd always wanted to be a hairdresser and um, he's got salons in New Zealand. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's what I heard just, just the other day from a mutual friend. Um, and Morteza lives in Sydney and he's um, he does building and decoration and and all of that. Right. He actually um, put down the carpet in my apartment. <laughs> hey, good contacts. I know. A lot of people I knew in detention um, did well. Uh, a lot of them have their own businesses. A lot of them are in interior decoration or building, that kind of thing. I know at least three who, who've done that. It's been hard. It hasn't been easy. But they've made their lives here. What would you like people to take away from Halala Mashakal? What's the most important thing, if you could pick one? That asylum seekers are not the enemy. They are people too, and they are deserving of both compassion and justice, and they're getting neither. Linda, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. Thank you, Toby. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode, or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press, with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.